Well, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome <clears throat> to the class. Uh, you could tell I'm doing it from my home today, trying to check out a couple of things on our YouTube channel and how to do a few things. So I'm doing it this way <clears throat> today for that reason, but um, let me, let me just begin. I, what I want to do today, and, and again, I'm just doing this kind of to uh, try out our software, but what I want to do today is continue in our study of Romans. And in doing so, since we've kind of gone away from that study for a little while, looking at some other aspects of um, uh, deviations from it, but, you know, not, not really deviations from it, just the places that were looked at in light of things that we were studying in Romans 8. However, I think what we need to do is begin to uh, re-examine Romans 8, go back to Romans 8. But before we do that, I think we have to go back a little bit and study and look at a couple of verses that we've already covered to bring us all back to um, focus on this area of study. We're looking in Romans 8, of course, where he begins this wonderful statement, this comprehensive statement, a statement that most people even yet have trouble comprehending based upon their desire to assess everything by the, by what we can see performance, what people do, how well they do it. This is a performance minded Christianity that is the enemy of actual truth is the reality is the enemy of the cross. It's a, it's the enemy of not I, but Christ is a uh, performance based merit based uh, Christianity that assesses the worth of the believer. And I mean, worth in the sight of God based upon how well they perform their deeds, their, um, their efforts toward, being spiritual and being holy. The reality of a life that has no condemnation in it. And we've talked about this previous, you'd have to go to previous lessons to see it, but a life in which there is no condemnation is a life that is defined in the very person of Jesus Christ. It is not a life that we can live, that we can Perform. It's not a life that can be seen by what you do and do not do. As we've talked about before, there's an internal enslavement. There is an internal subjugation to a, to a source, a seed, what the scripture calls a corruptible seed. There is that innate inborn soul to a state of sin and death, a state of corruption. There's only one answer to that. It is not doing better, act better, not bring the solution or the remedy to this internal condition. 
the answer to this internal inborn corruptibility is to be born of the incorruptible seed. It is in that transaction of the spirit that we come to be partakers of a life wherein there is no condemnation. That is why he says, there is therefore now condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where that verse actually ends in the literal translations. In the literal, it does not go on and, and give a... a to those who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. That is not actually in the first verse. It is a matter of fact statement based upon a reality that is so because it is always in view of the one who makes it so, not the variables that mankind brings into the picture, not the variables of lifestyle and how well did you do today? Did you mess up? Did you think a bad thought, do a, do a bad deed? It's about an absolute condition that is that is ushered into the soul, or we can st state as a gift of grace, bestowed to the soul by God himself, a life without any condemnation at all, because it is not I, but Christ. There's the life defined. Christ liveth in me. And that being the case, that remedy being the case, because you see, he's talking, he's bringing to a conclusion reality of Romans 7, a man under the law, yet under the law of Moses, which was a man attempting to be as holy as possible, to be good, to be righteous, and yet simultaneously being internally subject enslaved to the law, to the principle, as some commentaries will say, of sin and death. No matter what he did externally, because he was not out blatantly sinning, as we talk about it in the church, he wasn't out there doing terrible sins. He was actually attempting to be righteous before God based upon his flawless execution of the law of Moses. And yet, he understood that every time he would attempt to bring about in his doings, in his efforts, in his zeal, actually bring about what the law itself intended and demanded, he saw that the absolute opposite was always the result. That where life was called for, death was always present. Where goodness was called for, evil was always resident. And he could not change that condition. He couldn't change that state, no matter what he did, because it is not external transactions and activities that change anything. It is an inter internal transaction, an internal work of the power of God that brings about the necessary change. Changes the soul from death unto life, from being a slave as you will read throughout the chapters we've already looked at of, of a slave to sin to now a slave of righteousness. Where we were once free from righteousness, now we're free from sin. Why? Because we are now enslaved to a greater master. We are now partakers of another life. We are under the headship of another man. We are married, as Romans 7 will 
uh, bring out. Married to another because we are dead to the first. Therein we are partakers of a life without condemnation. A life without condemnation. Because it is not defined by ourselves. It is defined by the one who lives in us. And this is where we kind of ended our look at Romans 8 by looking at the first few verses, but this is where we ended. Uh, let's see. Verse 8, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 8. We've already talked about the previous. We're not going to go into that. We've talked about this, but I think we need to just reconsider this before we move on into the next verses. This this is kind of the anchor that would keep us, kind of the hinge that 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 brings us from the previously stated realities to where we're going from here. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, today in Christianity, we always talk about being in the flesh, and we do so as if it's just a transient thing. It's, boy, I was, man, I was just in the flesh. Why? Uh, you know, I, I spoke roughly to someone. I said something I shouldn't have said, I, whatever. We have all of these different ways that we uh, now uh, define the fact that we are um, – you know, in the flesh or not in the flesh. So we'll say, well, God, I was in the flesh. And then we'll say, here's why I was in the flesh. And it's some kind of a, uh, you know, temporary thing that happened, just a happening that, that took place. And so I was in the flesh and you no, know, not in the spirit. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. See, Paul is not talking about in the flesh as being something that trivial. Paul speaks of being in the flesh as an actual state of the soul, an actual state, a condition in which man finds himself through birth, being born of the corruptible seed. Being in the flesh is not just some kind of thing you do and then you snap out of it, repent, and now you're spirit again. It doesn't happen that way. We make it that flippant and that um, trivial because we don't understand. Paul's not speaking of things like we do in that way, based upon action. We're talking about internal transactions, both, both births bring about an actual internal condition, internal state of being. That's what he's addressing here. If you, if you take this and you realize that uh, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, why? Go back to Romans 7. There was, there was a union that made it impossible. There was an internal condition called the law of sin and death that made it impossible to actually please God because the only thing that has ever pleased God is that life of which the commandment 
testified, of which the law testified. That life pleases God, and there's only one who possesses that life, or we could say there's only one who is that life. The birth of the Spirit, new birth, has brought us into union with that life. New birth has brought about a transaction where we have gone from the death of Adam, the death of being found in Adam, to life, which is Christ himself living in me. What is not of faith is sin, Paul will write. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because it is by faith that that transaction has taken place. It is by faith that we come from death unto life. It is by faith that we come from sin and enslaved to sin, enslaved to corruptibility, to being brought from corruption to incorruptibility, from uh, sin to a state of righteousness. Not we become righteous. We become partakers of the one of God. Are you in Christ who has made unto you righteousness? Again, not something you become because you do things properly, but because of the one in whom you now dwell or the one who by the grace of God now dwells in your soul, he has made unto you a state of spiritual reality that you could not possess otherwise, bringing into your soul a life that cannot be condemned or as uh, Galatians chapter 5 will say, a life, a, a state against there is no law, meaning the law cannot bring a charge or an accusation against the life that we now possess as those who are born of the Spirit. As long as you're in this state, the pleasure of God cannot take place. That means you're in Adam, you're in the flesh, you're not in Christ. And to make this a, a, a matter of effort or a matter of works is to diminish this reality from a state of being to a state of activity and achievement, to a matter of Christian zeal, because Christian zeal and effort will bring this about where I'm now pleasing God. No, this is about if you're in Adam, you can't please God. It's the same things Romans 7 to the very first says. As long as we were married to the first husband, the soul was bound to the first husband. Death, we could say, now being in the spirit, now being in Christ, now that being our state of being because the first is dead and we are dead to it there, being because the first is dead and we are dead to it thereby with another we may bring fruit unto God a fruit that please in John the fruit that glorifies the father it is the fruit that he is so let's go on in verse 9 of chapter 8 of Romans but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit 
What a statement. What a comprehensive statement that is. And most people don't understand the reality of that statement. Again, we make it based upon actions or inactions. We make it based upon thoughts, bad thoughts, good thoughts, whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit. And we make it this thing that has no anchor to it. is temporary at best, conduct as if that salvation that they have is not sure or certain, and they can be condemned. There is there is condemnation of being in flesh or being in the spirit. But Paul is read a couple things. Paul now turns, look at in verse nine, as for you, that he's trying to point out to them. It's not about, are you doing right? Or are you doing wrong? Are you doing things perfectly? Or are you messing up? That's not what this is about. He is encouraging them, exhorting them in the certainty of their state of being in Christ. So now he's saying to them, as for you, turning to this true audience, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. And the way we have, the way we have addressed that Paul's bringing in, this is so if the, if you do this right, if you do this right, then this is so. No, the truth of it is Paul is actually addressing something that is sure. He is encouraging them in a state of being, in a condition that is brought up absolutely no condemnation. A life that has, as he says in verse 4, fulfilled the righteousness of the law in him, not made him capable of fulfilling the righteousness of the law, but being in him, the righteousness of the law fulfilled. That's a big difference. And he is further encouraging them in this. He's not now saying, now, here's all of the conditions to that. No, he's now still encouraging them, having earlier stated this as a personal individual experience that has brought him from his experience of Romans 7 to now the liberty and freedom of Romans 8, being now partaker of the law of the spirit of life instead of being enslaved to the law of sin and death. He is now speaking to this audience and encouraging them in the same reality. He is saying, this is not just isolated to me. I'm not special. This is your condition as well. You are not in the spirit. And the flesh are not in the spirit. And the flesh are. You are not in the spirit. And again, he's not saying this because he sees that they act appropriately, that they're not messing up, that they're doing the things that enable them to be considered righteous and holy. He's stating this based upon one 
overarching governing reality that he does not leave out. He doesn't, he doesn't miss the opportunity to, to show them what making absolutely true. And I wish that we would get a hold of the fact that this and this alone is what makes the state of being absolute and sure. We don't have to add or supplement comprehension and apprehension as far as understanding of that which God in grace has bestowed unto us. That's what Paul says. We've received the spirit that we may know this grace that has been freely given. However, the reality is the reality from the moment Christ comes to abide within the soul. It doesn't become greater because we understand it. It is understanding that brings us to an acknowledgement and an enjoyment of how great it truly is. And that will keep us from actually attempting to make more perfect something that is already perfect, that will keep us and guard us from attempting to make more certain through works and efforts that are actually um, counterproductive, something that God in his son has already bestowed fully, that Christ and Christ alone embodies perfectly. We will never embody it perfectly. We will never embody the reality of salvation in its fullness. He is the full embodiment of salvation and all that that all that that means he is the full embodiment of it in us you are not in the flesh but you are in the spirit how can you say that paul and let me let me clarify this as well this is not paul saying this to this one isolated group of christians known as the romans here because he understands that they've reached this level of spirituality now i've heard this that they have reached this level of spirituality so that now he can make this statement regarding the Roman church because they have reached that level. He can't say it as a comprehensive statement concerning the entirety of the church. He can only say it regarding this, this particular group of people, maybe a couple more here and there, but this letter, addresses this particular group of people, and he says it of this particular group of people because he sees that they have reached this level. Now they have come to a place where they are actually not in the flesh, but spirit. But look at what he says is the only true requ uh, uh, prerequisite, the only thing that makes it sure. Not you do certain things well. You're doing this perfectly. You're, you're doing the things that are necessary. Not that. Look at what he's saying. How, how does he say this? You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. There's the only condition. There's the only clause. There's the only thing that makes that statement real. And it doesn't pertain to a specific group of believers that have reached a certain level, the levels that we love in Christianity. We love to preach levels. We love to think I'm up here and these people are down here, these poor people, same degree. But we are to the same degree, partakers of the one perfect 
life. Therefore, partakers of the one perfect righteousness of God. We are all, all who are in Christ, in whom the Spirit himself dwells, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because he's present. You see, the internal condition is what makes it sure. That internal habitation itself makes this the sure condition of a soul. It is not contingent upon my activity. I know that angers and that frustrates people when I say that, but it's true. It is not, none of this is contingent upon me or how well I'm doing or how bad I'm doing. The reality of my soul's salvation is entirely contingent upon and secured in the fact that he dwells in me. That's it. This is not true of a special class or group of people. This is true of all in whom he, the spirit of Christ dwelling in you makes this ensures the fact that you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And there's nothing further necessary for that to be true. The spirit being present in you, and that means Christ being present in your soul, ensures the fact that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave to righteousness. Because he who is your life has been of God made unto you righteousness. He has brought in the very indwelling of himself, he has brought into your soul through his presence the righteousness that he is, the holiness that he is, the justification that he is, the sanctification that he is, the reconciliation that he is. Now, let me read a couple things. This is not going to be a long session again. I just wanted to just say these things to get our minds back here in Romans 8 so that we can move on from here. Uh, this is from the Weast Word Study. This is in my notes here. Let me read this. Paul had just spoken of those who were in the sphere of the flesh. Weast loves to use that phrase when it says in, he uses the sphere in the sphere of the flesh, that is, within the grip of the evil nature, namely those who are unregenerate. Then he says, but as for you, in contradistinction to the unregenerate, you, that means those who are born again, are not in the sphere of that nature or the flesh. If so be, the last three words are the translation of Eper used of something that is assumed to be, but whether rightly or wrongly is left in doubt. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. There's the only thing though. The word could be translated provided that or assuming that. That is assuming that the spirit of God dwells in you. 
is an indication you are not in the sphere of the evil nature. He will proceed in the context and declare that the end of the expectation of God, this is the hope he'll talk about later here in this chapter we'll get to, this expectation of God is now re realized in the person of this one, this spirit who now dwells in them. Now, we've got a lot of things to cover in this. And again, this is just, I wanted to be short, just introduce the thought. But here's the governing reality of what he's going to say, because there's been some true misinterpretations of the next verses, the proceeding verses from here have been taken so far out of their context and have been so misunderstood and misapplied that they have been made out to mean so many fantastic and fanciful things that if, when we get into the things and try to uh, actually look at what Paul is actually saying, to some people, it's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be such a letdown. No, that can't be true. I mean, things like these mortal bodies will be quickened by the spirit. My, wow, what has been made of that, right? We know what's been made of that. Glorified bodies that can walk through walls, glowing in the dark. We know these things. We know what people have done with it. But these ideas are just the imaginations of natural minds trying to understand something and make spiritual something that is spiritual. But spiritual doesn't mean stupid. Spiritual doesn't mean outlandish. It is spiritual because he substantiates the whole thing himself. Christ, the spirit of Christ, substantiates this whole reality in himself. So when we talk about this, look at, I mean, look at these next verses, and this is where I'm going to go. I have it right here in front of me. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. What does that mean? Again, it, it can mean anything in the mind of Christians today. From one day, these dirt bodies will be raised out of dirt and be glorified. Or these bodies will take on a sailor change to where they won't even die. These bodies won't even die. And those are not crazy. There's my dog. These are not crazy ideas. They're crazy ideas, but they're not ideas that are not actually out there in predominant circles of Christianity. They're actually preached. And again, what the truth of this is, is all contextualized in everything he has said up to this point. And as we end this, let me just say this. As you read these verses, because our next lesson will actually get into this, uh, verses 10 and 11. But this, this is the real anchor of verse 10 and 11. The real anchor of the thing is 
You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. Two opposing conditions, one being in Adam, one being in Christ, one being dead in sin, one being now through Christ dead to sin and alive unto God. These are two opposing conditions, not uh, things that are based upon habit or based upon decisions, bad decisions or good decisions. That's how we have defined flesh and spirit and being in the one or the other. No, it's a it's an absolute, two absolute opposing contradictory states. He just moved in and out of. They are dependent upon the headship of one man or another. Being in the flesh and being in the spirit actually is determined by the headship you're under, not the decision you've made the habit that you have either laid down or picked up. But that governs this reality of the body being dead, the spirit being life, and this quickening of the mortal body. Keep in mind as we, again, as we end this, keep this in mind as we go. When you read these things like a body being quickened by the spirit that dwells in us, Let's just consider for a moment that this can actually be Paul saying the same thing he said in other places. Let's take that thought for a moment. That this is actually Paul saying in these ways something he said in another way. And there's many of them that will concur with this statement. Just not sound so fantastic. Just not sound so spiritual. And I say spiritual in quotes the way we call it spiritual. Man, I'm going to float in the air one day. I actually had a friend who had a a large library in his house. He was a preacher. And I said I had a friend. I haven't seen him in years, and I, I still uh, miss the times we had together. But he had this book, <laughs> and he made fun of it as well. So he made the, he had this book that on the cover of it, it had a, a man with a cape flying just like Superman. But this book was actually a Christian book, not a, not a comic book. It was a book written by a theologian who believed that the Spirit of God, whole, the whole work of the Spirit of God was to restore us back to the state of Adam before the fall. But his idea of Adam before the fall was that Superman flying on the cover of his book. It was a man who had all kinds of supernatural powers, who could fly, who could walk through walls, who could do all kinds of crazy, uh, unbelievable things. And that was the whole work of the spirit was to restore us to the state where we could fly, telecommute, or what is it? Uh, teleport. Do all of those things. That was the whole gist of it. And God's restoration to, to that was his entire ambition. That's what God was after. That was the whole gist of it. And God's restoration to, to that was his entire ambition. That's what God was after. Again, 
that's not as far-fetched and as wild as it may sound. Some people actually still hold to that idea. But wouldn't it? But why not? Let's just sit here for a moment. That the quickening of these bodies could relate to something like this. And the life which I now live in this body, this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not any longer in this body, in my zeal in this body, the, the evidences and proofs that I attempted at one time to, to present to God and the world in this body, I no longer frustrate the grace of God in that way because if righteousness came in that way by law and performance of the law, then Christ died in vain. Why couldn't it be something along that line? It is. That's actually what he's saying here. And it all is clarified if you go right back to Romans 7 and understand what he was doing in his body, attempting through his flesh, activities of his body, observances of the law, what he was attempting to perform and to achieve by such performance. Now, by the Spirit's indwelling and his comprehension through the revealing of that reality, of a revealing of the person who has brought this transaction from death into life, from the bondage of sin to sin and death to the life of the Spirit that has liberated him from such a condition. He now walks and lives in this body, not to perform not to prove, not to bring in his body the evidence, but to live every day in his body as one who is beholding the evidence in another. Because most of the efforts we do in our body, let's, let's just be honest, the religious efforts that we do in these bodies as Christians, good Christians, and sincere ones, no doubt. The majority of those efforts are indeed a frustration of the grace of God. They are a means by which we believe we will achieve righteousness when the fact is that the grace of God has actually provided righteousness completely, fully, perfectly and the actually provided righteousness completely, fully, perfectly in the presence of this one who has made us free from sin and death, who has brought us from sin to righteousness, from the bondage to sin to now being Slaves to righteousness brought us from a state of being that kept righteousness as an impossibility 
to a state of being that has provided righteousness through the presence of Christ himself. We will we'll talk about this. But just keep in mind that that simple thing, Roman, I mean uh, Galatians chapter 2 18, 19, 20, 21, that context brings you right here to what he's saying about the life we live in this body, the body being quickened to service through the spirit that dwells in it. So I hope this has uh, helped. I hope this has uh, got us back uh, focused on Romans 8. That's where we'll go from here. I appreciate you guys being with us. Hope this has worked out all right. Not too bad. I know there's a glare behind me. I'm sorry about that. Just wanted to see how this works because um, uh, some of us in CMI will be doing some of these things uh, as we go in this in this way uh, a little differently. So thanks, guys, for being with us again. Uh, again, the uh, June conference coming up. June 22nd through the 26th. That's uh, Monday through Friday. The actual sessions will begin Tuesday morning. Monday we'll have a you know, food and uh, just getting together and talking and having that time. Um, and then everything will begin Tuesday morning. As far as the sessions, there'll be three sessions every day up until Friday morning. There'll be two morning sessions or one long morning session on Friday. It just depends, but, um, that will happen and it will end at noon on the 26th of June. We hope that you can come. There's places, uh, we've been looking, there's Airbnb places uh, around this area. You may want to look at, we'll have some information on the website pretty soon. You can, uh, email us if you want more information, but, uh, we would look forward to having as many of you as possible who can come and be with us. We think it's going to be a great time of sharing a great time of just being together. And we always look forward to it. So if you can be here, please come and be a part of this time, June 22nd through the 26th. Amen. Thanks.